One thing you hear Christians say a lot about the president is, well, he moved the embassy to Jerusalem, and that's a big deal for them. But should it be a big deal? Should every Christian have been pining for a long time for the American embassy to move from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, which very few countries will do uh, because of the just the, the political crossroads that Jerusalem is? Some take some verses in the Bible, and they say those verses mean any country that supports Israel is going to be blessed, and any country that doesn't, isn't. Are those verses being translated in the right way, though? We're going to have uh, one of our NPE discussion groups that has recently talked about this subject. In modern-day Israel, what does it mean to the modern-day Christian? And how should we look at Israel as a political issue in our Christian voting. So a great discussion group coming up for you to listen to that. Just want to make a quick plug. If uh, you've heard of my novel, Joseph Comes to Town, When the Religious Right Become Religiously Wrong, now you can hear the religious right go religiously wrong in audiobook form. We record it in segments, and then I do an exclusive commentary for each segment, kind of about what was happening while I was writing it, why I wrote, what's the underlying subtext in it all. And you can only get it by joining our NPE Patreon community. If you go to npepodcast.com, our website, and click on that Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner, it's just $5.99 a month to get access to all the great stuff we do as a community, including our private NPE Facebook group, where I sort of post more things than I do on the, the rest of the pages. But love for you to join. and also gives us a little bit of financial support to help buy new equipment or do the things we need to do on the nonpartisan evangelical. So if you'd like to help us financially, join the Patreon group. If you'd like to hear the audiobook, join the Patreon group. Go to npepodcast.com, click on the Patreon button in the upper right-hand corner, and you can join. So now, Christians, how should we look at modern-day Israel? And what does it mean to us as a political voting issue? You're going to hear some amazing people give you some amazing insight on this topic right now on the Nonpartisan Evangelical Weekly Tuesday Discussion Group. For those willing to listen, learn, and have eyes to see and ears to hear, this is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Challenging the mindset of right-wing Christianity and encouraging people to have their minds renewed and hearts transformed. What knucklehead, mush-for-brains evangelical leaders are trying to, uh, to overthrow Trump? It's a special kind of dumb and calling yourself a Christian. Let's have better conversations about the life modeled in the Bible so we can truly tell the world God is not mad at you. This is the Nonpartisan Evangelical Podcast at npepodcast.com. So a shortened NPE discussion this week because there's this wrestling match coming up afterward, otherwise known as a presidential debate. So we're going to get you off to that. But welcome those of you joining on Facebook. This is our NPE discussion of how should Christians relate to 21st century Israel. I'm Paul Swearingen from the Nonpartisan Evangelical. And if you've joined us over the past few weeks, we're just American citizens, many of us people of faith, Christians, talking about 
how we should relate to different issues that are important in uh, politics and faith today. And a, a big driver of this is our producer today, Lauren D'Amico, who has his website, Intersecting Faith and Politics, who are co-sponsoring the event tonight, as well as our good friends at Vote Common Good, who are bussing around the country doing amazing stuff for the upcoming election. So we have a great panel tonight, and I'm in a hurry to get us right to it because we're a little shortened. And so what I want, panel, and we're so glad to have you guys here tonight, we'll just go around the horn, introduce yourself, Tell us where you are or where you're from or whatever is pertinent to that and why you wanted to be on this panel tonight. And so let's start with Bob Prater. Bob, introduce yourself. I am Bob Prater. I'm in Bakersfield, California, which is the southern end of the Central Valley of, of California. I host a podcast called A Christian and a Muslim Walk Into a Studio. I co-authored this book called The Language of Healing for a Polarized Nation. And Israel is very near and dear to my heart uh, as, a, as an ex-evangelical. And I'd like to just deconstruct a little of what that means. Very good. Thanks, Bob. Stephanie, tell us about you. Sorry, I had to unmute myself. Hi, I'm Stephanie McDade, and I just finished my master's in theology at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and am looking for... Um, looking to continue writing and potentially write a book. So maybe I'll be asking Bob about some book writing tips. Very nice. Congratulations on that degree. Fantastic. Thank you. All right, James. Uh, I'm James. I'm, I live in uh, Northern Virginia in Culpeper, which is a small town, not far from uh, Charlottesville, where we had our friendly intersection between the, the far right and the, the Antifa people. Good people um, on both sides, I believe. <laughs> Good people on both sides. Hopefully tonight we're more interested in being peacemakers than anything else. My background is evangelical, specifically dispensationalist. And so I grew up believing that, that Israel was very prominent in the in millennial and end times things that I saw them as the people of God. And uh, for the most part, I believe that Israel was, were the good guys. And I never thought to question whether what they were doing was good or bad. And then about five years ago, I felt led to uh, walk into the local mosque and begin developing relationships with people there. And now I'm friends with and pray regularly with and for my Muslim friends. And I have friends from the Palestinian area, Palestine, from Jordan, from Egypt. And in the process of building relationships there, I, I had to rethink my view of these things. And my view is, is basically God loves both the descendants of, of Isaac and Ishmael. Very nice. All right, James, good to have you tonight. Manuel, how about you? Yeah, my name is Manuel, Manuel, Manuel from Germany originally. And I've uh, been in the United States 19 years. I worked with youth with a mission running Bible schools. I now work with a trading company, which is an anti-trafficking ministry. And this topic is uh, interesting to me just from uh, my studies of the prophets, specifically Jeremiah. And the book I've been teaching on since 2003, fairly regularly around the world when it comes to justice, when it comes to a prophet that loved his people very dearly, but had some words, very strong words for them, uh, specifically when it came to this understanding of this is our land. Nobody can take this. And uh, yeah, that's why I'm here. All right, Manuel, thank you. And Tim. My name's Tim. I'm in, currently in North Carolina. I'm an unapologetic, passionate follower of Jesus from the Pentecostal tradition. 
and I am stunned that America is becoming just like Israel. <laughs> and so we're making the same mistakes they made when Moses came down from the mountain. So this is a conversation that needs to go on and we need to go back and take a second look. All right, panel, we're off and rolling already. And everybody watching on Facebook, we are monitoring the comments so you can ask questions. You can make comments and we might be able to get those in as part of the conversation. So we certainly welcome you to join in to this conversation. James, let's start with you. Just give us a quick synopsis. What Bible verses support this idea that a country that blesses Israel will be blessed or the converse will be cursed if they don't, and how is that concept carried into the 21st century? I spent some time today going back over the verses because I didn't want to come across as a complete illiterate on, on this subject. And reading through it, it just seems that the basic issue of blessing Israel is who is Israel and who is what were the promises that were made. And their promises all through, especially in Genesis, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 21, Genesis 22, Genesis 26, and then Genesis 35. There are all these promises that are made to different people. They're made to, to Abraham, and usually when it's talking about Abraham, it's Abraham and his descendants, which would be both his firstborn son, Ishmael, and his secondborn son, Isaac. There are promises made specifically to Isaac and his descendants. There are promises made specifically to Ishmael and his descendants. So there are a number of different promises there. And what really surprised me when I'm reading through it is that the first promise is to Abraham and his descendants. And that is one of the one of the promises that specifically relates to the land ownership, which obviously is the, the big area of controversy. So to Abraham and his descendants, who at that point, it was Ishmael and Isaac, uh, to your descendants, I give this land. And it talks about from Egypt and eastward, uh, that land, not just to Isaac, as we, as I was always taught, but to Isaac and to Ishmael. 17, 4 through 8, Abraham and descendants, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between you and your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I'll give you as an everlasting possession. Once again, it's not to just one son, but it's to both sons. Then in uh, 1719 to Isaac and his descendants. He says, I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants. So there's something different there, a covenant specifically with Isaac that I think personally is more of a spiritual nature that is through Isaac that we get, we, that we find David, that we find the, the prophets and we find Jesus than Ishmael. Let me jump in just a little bit on it. Yeah, there's a lot of those there. And so how does that tie in into the idea that a country can be blessed or cursed by the followers? And by the way, controversial thing they're saying, it's to Ishmael and Isaac when we so often say Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But um, how does that tie in, that blessing, and how did it become tied in in evangelicalism so much that those who blessed Israel, the country, would be blessed and those who did not, would not? You want me to continue or somebody else wanted Manuel sounds like you've been teaching on this a little bit. I don't know if you want to jump in next. I just need a minute because the dogs are going a little crazy out here. Somebody just came <laughs> home somebody else go. This is this is Zoom life today. I can give you one short thought about how it came about. John Darby, Schofield, Hal Lindsay, 
Jim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins. That's it. It's all dispensationalism. Only about 150 years old. And through dispensationalism, they move Jesus. They move Israel right over next to Jesus. And, uh, and, and we bought the narrative. Yeah, James. I jumped in on that for a second because it Go shocked it. me today. I never realized this before, but when I was reading um, when I was reading these descriptions of Ishmael in the NIV and in the New American Standard, its description of, Ish- of Ishmael was really not very nice. They created treated him as this hostile person who was constantly fighting with others. He was a wild donkey of a man, and he was not. He made his abode away from his brother, who would have been Isaac. And then, by some chance, I happened to look at the King James, and the King James didn't present it like that. The King James said he will make his abide with his brother, not away from his brother. Wow. And I looked at the Geneva Bible from 1699 with his brother, not away from his brother. And then a translation from 1899 with his brother, not away from his brother. Yet all these other translations after the beginning of the 20th century present him as being away from his brother and put this emphasis on him being hostile. And I don't know to what extent Zionism and dispensationalism uh, or whether it was a better interpretation later on. I don't know. But there was a definite change in the presentation of who Ishmael was. Is he a friend of God or was he somehow the enemy? So that's very pertinent to the discussion because the idea here is even the Crusades were built around the idea that Islamic people had to be moved out of the way so that Israel could be reestablished as a community for the Jews. And so whether that land was promised just to Jewish people and those descendants of Abraham and not Ishmael, that's a very interesting subject. Anybody want to jump in and, and, and piggyback on that? Yeah, I think... Uh, oh, Go no, ahead, go Manuel. Ahead. No, go ahead. Right, yeah. Last time I was here, we were talking about Germany. And as a German... My biggest fear is to say something that could come across anti-Semitic. We are great supporters of Israel and are very aware of our guilt. And so what I want to focus on is uh, how God responds to his people. And one of the teachings I've been doing for many years is the teaching on justice and God's view of justice. And there's two verses or two passages that I think are really key and pertinent to this. Uh, one is the famous temple sermon in Jeremiah 7, if you're familiar with that. And it's very interesting because God confronts injustice, the oppression of the needy, those that can't defend themselves by his people. And he makes this really interesting statement. This is found in Jeremiah 7, verse 3, where he says, Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you, I will let you live in this place. And so the the land is conditional to them representing God the way that he wanted to be represented. So they are light to the nations. And then God goes on, just in deceptive words, this is the temple of the Lord. The idea is the temple is here. God would not destroy us. We're fine, even though Samaria is already gone. And he says, if you really change your ways and your actions and do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, then... Or, or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you're trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods, and then come and stand here and say, we're safe, we're delivered. And, and so it's very clear, and that's what all the prophets and the law and even the words of Jesus are about, 
is that it's not a unconditional promise. Man, you got hung up there. You got frozen. Doing justice, not oppressing the poor. Okay, we yeah, lost you. For, am I am I still talking? We mm -hmm. lost you for just a second there, and, and yeah. Stephanie, yeah. I see you shaking your head a lot. Did you want to jump in on that? Yeah, sorry, I'm very expressive. Yeah, I just thought I I think that's a really good point because one thing that you do see with the covenant language in the Old Testament, it's very much a conditional covenant. That's the whole point of why the new covenant is so, is so different. It's meant to be unconditional under Christ's blood, but that is such an interesting point having it, the land actually is involved in the actual covenant. And if the covenant itself is conditional, then the land is a part of that equation. And I just thought that was a really uh, great point to make from the, what changes from the old to new Testament and the land being something that was part of the equation that now is not, is what I, I would argue is the argument to make, but maybe that's not where you were going manual, but. Hey, and let yeah, me no, jump in here. I was just going to say, Manuel, I really appreciate your point about anti-Semitism. We're, we're, so do we need to like separate a little bit the idea of Israel from the, the Jewish people as a nation of people? And is there a separation thereof? And even the idea of a spiritual Israel versus a political state of Israel, are they one in the same that what we see in the Bible or is there a difference there? Does anybody have any thoughts on that? My view is, is I don't think you can take these stories in the Old Testament, even if you do uh, hold to a literal reading of them and just roll them over and apply them to the nation state of Israel that was founded for political reasons, for really selfish colonial reasons in 1948. I, I, I think they're, they're, just, they're not, the, it's not the same people group. Even if you look at the Jewish people, there's, they've only accounted for two tribes. There was 12 tribes. So you've always got these 10 lost tribes that everybody thinks, which is probably you and I and all of us will put together. So it, what's there really doesn't even come close to representing the Jewish people, if you could even represent it. So I think, I think that's the first thing. I don't think you can read those passages and just say, okay, flip them over. Can, can I jump in? Sure, Bob. Sure. It's, I, I find it really interesting, Emmanuel, what you said about the, the conditions for the land, to me, that's the, that's the money, is that, that everything is always conditional. Even prophetic declarations in the Bible are oftentimes conditional upon, if you do this, I will do that. So when we see things like, since 2018, there have been over 100 people killed in the Gaza Strip, Palestinians, by Israeli forces, when they were not under any kind of a life-threatening attack at all, and scores more that have been wounded. If I'm, going to, if I'm going to be hard on my evangelical Christian brothers and sisters in my own country, which I am, then it's incumbent upon me to be consistent and to hold people to a standard. Israel needs to be held to a standard. When you have a leader that is basically as corrupt as our leader, and I, and I hope that doesn't set people off, but Netanyahu is, is, this is a corrupt leader. And when you've got corruption at the top, it brings it right straight down. For me, my eyes were, were completely opened, although I've never been a real apologist, Israel, uh, over everything. But when I started hanging out with my Muslim friend, who's a, his name is Ahmad Mirza, 
one of the one of the Muslim leaders in this area, uh, a Muslim leader really known around the world. When I started hanging out with him and doing these podcasts, and we talked a lot about Israel, he said, "Bob, you have to dig and do some work to find out what's really happening because you cannot believe the party line that's being fed to you from the evangelical church and especially the white evangelical church." Which, Tim, you brought up that thing of the lost tribes and whatnot. We take this thing so far in America that we believe in Europe and here that British Israelism that we are, we are God's chosen people today. Yep. That's how insane some of this becomes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, James, go ahead. Yeah, uh, when you're talking about this stuff, obviously anti-Semitism is a concern because any form of bigotry is ungodly because God loves all people. Everyone is created in the image of God. And there are good reasons why the Jewish people are concerned. They are certainly not the only group, people group that have been discriminated against over the years. And so there's not really, to be able to say, to be able to say we need, there needs to be fairness for Palestinians. There needs to be justice and love and kindness for the Palestinians. There needs to be laws that protect the Palestinians. It's not an attack, an attack on Jewish people. And even if, you, even if you look at Israel, yes, God had a covenant with Israel, but apparently the covenant didn't protect them from, Bab- from Babylon or Assyria or eventually the Roman Empire, uh, God allowing them to remove them because of the fact that they were not. I've made this, I, have, I wish I had more Jewish friends. I mean, my attempt was to be a peacemaker by reaching out to Muslims, but I'd like to also reach out to more Jewish people. And my feeling is the best way to protect Israel is to say you have to behave the way God wants you to behave. You know, and loving your neighbor and treating others you have control over with decency and humanity is one of the best ways you can protect Israel and the reputation of Jews everywhere. Now, Tim. I would say, too, I think if you can set the whole spiritual piece aside for a second and look at Israel, it's colonization 101. You go in, you oppress the people. You, I've been there. I've been there many times. They discriminate. They, they put the Palestinian down at every turn. They destroy their houses. They steal their water. They go through checkpoints. They can't go to Jerusalem. Every point, they're reminded that they're nothing. They're zero. So what happens is you keep that oppression. And then sooner or later, because even, and this is one, this is why pulling out of Gaza, they, they say, we let them have it, have it, it's their fault. But that was very strategic because that kept the Palestinian people split. There is no unified Palestinian voice. And mm. they've been doing this long enough that everybody's made their peace with the oppressor, which also happens in colonization. And so there's a lot of money there that they don't want to, they don't want to leave it. They don't want to give it up for the greater good. But anyway, so what happens, Israel keeps the pressure up. Sooner or later, because there's no unified voice, someone in Gaza says, the hell with this, I can't deal with it anymore, and he lobs a bottle rocket or two. Usually, I mean, they, they terrorize the Israelis. Sometimes they actually hurt them and do kill them, but in general, they're, they're pretty painless. Okay, so that then becomes justification for Israel to send in the Apache helicopters right. and kill those people like you just said. I remember when I, I was there... About a month after I was there, was like those three teenage kids that were killed, oh, maybe about four or five years ago. There was 2,200 yeah. Palestinians that were killed as a direct response to that. So my point is that 
it becomes a cycle that just keeps going because the response justifies the response. And so at some point you have to realize that it's in my best interest. And this is if, if I would I would know Israel was yeah. following God if they saw that if they want to be safe, you gotta make the other people safe. All and right, vice versa. Thanks, Tim. Stephanie, you wanted to jump in? Yeah, sorry. I I had a couple of different things, so I might be going back a little bit in the conversation. But okay. cool. so back to the question, you, Paul, you had mentioned something about the difference between Israel as a nation and as a people. And I actually think that's a really important distinction to make um, if we're coming, especially coming at it from um, a Christian perspective or biblical perspective. Because if you look at the thread throughout the Old Testament, there is an ongoing narrative that's being woven that's already making distinguish uh, a distinguishing delineation between the people and the nation of God. And so even God himself, especially when they someone had mentioned up brought up theocracy. They were once a theocracy, presumably. Israel, God was their leader and then they chose they wanted a human leader, they wanted Saul. As you can see throughout the Old Testament there's this ongoing narrative of the the way that Israel was intended to be a theocracy is becoming less and less of a reality. And simultaneously with that, you have this narrative of there's something more, there's something different, there's something else that's coming in the future that is heralded in the in that time. And if you look at actually the intertestamental uh, literature, which is between the Old and New Testament, but it's really um, Second Temple um, Judaism literature. You have really fascinating dialogue of, you see the people of Israel, the Israelites coming to terms with God having forsaken them. And you really see that, especially with the first temple being destroyed, you have this deep awareness of the, things are not the way they were meant to be this Israelite project, us and God covenant thing is not anymore. Whatever it was, it doesn't exist anymore. And so that actually sets up, obviously, the stage for Jesus to come on the scene in the New Testament and say, hey, you already have been feeling it. You already know that things aren't the way that they were supposed to be in the Old Testament. Your prophets talked about it, and he brings up all these different things, that there's something else. It's going to be different. So I just wanted to bring that up as that's in the background. And I think it's important to discuss how that can avoid the anti-Semitism charge, because in that, you're not just, you're not saying God has rejected Israel or the people of Israel. You're saying that God has rejected the, the concept of this theocracy nation that is no, this nation led entirely by God, which is no longer a reality. And so if you put it in that light, I think that sort of sets, especially Christians, at ease a little bit more to understand that background and going, okay. That makes me feel a little better, at least that for me, that growing up in an evangelical church and learning it through that lens really helped me to frame it. And I think that's really a significant point, not only from protecting ourselves for, you know, from any sort of anti-Semitism, but the idea that Christians have to vote for a candidate that is pro-Israel in what we currently define as pro-Israel, because that's God's will for the world. And, and what I think I hear you guys making a distinction is being pro-Israel, the country as it is today, sometimes the oppressor of its own people versus supporting Israel, the concept of, of the land that's going to usher in another coming of Jesus being two very different things. 
Is, did I summarize that? I, I, I think because I think that's where we get a, a bit confused as evangelicals that this moving of the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem being the end all be all of everything a president could have done maybe is a little more something temporal based than in the the future with God. So I don't know if anybody wanted to jump in on my summary there, but I, I think I want to keep pointing us back to the political aspects of this as we're in an election time. And that's why we're doing these discussions that we want to say to Christians, hey, some of your reasoning for your voting may not exactly be 100% in line with the Bible. James, you wanted to jump in? Just real quick, I think there's a confusion about who Israel is and who are the descendants of Israel, of who are the descendants of uh, Isaac and who are the descendants of Ishmael. None of the promises are made based on faith. They're not saying, okay, the Jews will get this, the Muslims, obviously there were no Muslims will get this. It's all like a bloodline kind of a thing. And if you look at the basis of the bloodline, I don't think that most of the resident citizens of Israel have any more claim to that bloodline than the Palestinians who've lived there for hundreds and hundreds of years. So I think it falls true. apart at some point. I think it's we true. really don't know who Israel is at this point. There's the nation state of Israel. And then there's Stephanie says, there's the Israel of the Bible, which probably really doesn't exist. Anymore. I, I, I would even go so far as to say, when God says this nation, I don't, I don't even think he meant a political identity like we talk about. I think it's a much more of a metaphorical term or a, or a literary term that was put in there. It's not like saying, okay, this space is going to be yours. Because if they were looking out the Euphrates and the Tigris, that was the probably the far, all the farthest they could see. So the, the boundaries tucked uh, to Joshua, we're saying, is not necessarily well, Israel. I don't, think it, I, don't think it's, I don't think real estate is the deal. I, with God, real estate's not the deal. Manuel, you, you unmuted? I'm unmuted, I think. Am I? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm really enjoying this discussion. And um, as we're talking about these things, there's two other points I think that are important to consider. One is just a side point. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, right? That's in Luke 19, I think. And he says, if you had only known what brings you peace, but now, and he talks about the second destruction in 70 AD, and he weeps and God's hurt broken over that. And so I think that's important to remember. That's not what God wanted, which is a strong theological statement, but uh, scripture indicates that. And secondly, uh, all of Romans is about what happens with the Jews, right? That's the main point of the Romans, Jews and Gentiles. And Paul looks ahead and says, look, you as Gentile believers are drafted in. You're not a big deal. Don't be proud. Don't be conceited. But he also talks about who is the real Israel, right? He said, are the, the true Israel those um, in the flesh, uh, circumcised in the flesh? He says, no, it's those circumcised in heart, and you're part of that, but you're drafted in. And it brings a humility, I think, that oftentimes we're missing, and that we certainly were missing as we were moving ahead, that bread is the right word, bread, anti-Semitism. And so I think those are two points that, that are important to consider as well. God's broken heart over the way things went. And even Jesus' comment about, this is what's going to happen to you. And then Paul's uh, letter to the Romans, which is all about Jews and Gentiles, and who's the true people of God. So when God told Abraham, descendants as the sands of the seashore, that included us? Uh, is that? Uh, I would say so. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, all, all the sand. more Not just the sand on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's all the sands. <laughs> yeah. 
Interesting. And I, I, I do want to get, I, I, I wanted to hit one thing here. We, does Israel, Israel does get to defend itself. Are we in agreement of that? I, I, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? They have countries around them that want to destroy them as a people and as a nation. That's the no, political rhetoric. That's not true, Tim? Wow. I don't know. I, no, I think it's, Bob, it's, you were shaking your of, head. What do you think? I think it's hyped. It's hyped. You know, and here would be the point. There, the last time I did a little bit of research, and if you take Iran, for example, there's 130 military bases all around the perimeter of Iran. Most of them are American. Some of them are Israeli. Most of all of them have nukes. So would you trust these people? So if we believe that God is as invested in the Arab, in the Muslim, the, the Iranian, as he is in the, the Jew, as he is in the American, then it, it, it doesn't work. So Let me get to Bob. What You were going to jump in on that? Listen, they certainly do have the right to defend themselves. And there have been times... Tim, I would disagree with you a little bit. I understand the reality of all of those bases and nukes and whatnot, but uh, by and large, th this nation has undergone some pretty severe, whatever the word is, a lot of bad stuff has happened to them since before I was alive. You look at that and I begin to wonder, here's where it lands for me. There are a couple of issues that make evangelical American voters lose their minds where they just shut them off, they can no longer see, and they can no longer hear. And those issues are abortion and Israel. Uh, that's it. The other stuff is there too. They care about other stuff. But those two, there is nothing as sacrosanct as those two issues to, to evangelicals. I'm just wondering if those listening can open their ears and eyes just a little bit, because I think we get blinded by by the way we've been taught these prophetic declarations that are in scripture. I think we get, I think they, they are lenses that don't do us any favors. So I, it's my hope that as we begin to parse these things out, that people will literally take a step back and say, okay, maybe I haven't gotten this all the way because I know I'm a work in progress all the time. I'm in my sixties and still learning new things each and every day. It's just how things are supposed to work. So, Bob, does, this ties back a little bit to then uh, we get just the right president. He supports Israel in just the right way, just the right thing happens. And then Jesus will come and get us out of here and blow up all these bad people. Is, yeah, is that a little is, bit of where this is coming from? Yeah, that, because Jesus certainly taught us winning is everything. <laughs> right? Real quick. Go okay, ahead. Stephanie, Stephanie, go ahead. I think it's interesting to bring into this discussion, I think it's more than just, and I think we feel that there's something like you're saying tenacious about um, abortion, but also the Israel issue. And I really think that it's because our view of Israel, Israeli nationalism is so tied up with our own view of our own nationalism. I just feel like those two things can't be separated. And I feel like if it, it, that's what's at stake, right? So we're not willing to give up our Christian nationalism. Why? Why would we give up the, the, the thought of Israel where that really began? If we believe we're a Christian nation, we're God's chosen, obviously that's tied to the original chosen of God. And so if we give up the chosenness of Israel um, of, as a nation, then we have to give up our chosenness as a nation of America. And so I think that's why it's such a wow. pernicious thing. It's really 
ingrained. Wow. Stephanie, that is, that is super perceptive of you, yeah. super perceptive. And, and it's a hundred percent right because it's all intertwined, isn't it? We, yeah. we can't, we, we don't know where one ends and the other begins. Absolutely. Yeah. We we're starting, we're acting more and more like them every day. We have to remember the Pharisees said, hey, if people believe in Jesus, we're going to lose our religion and lose our country. And isn't that our fear right now, that our religion and our country will be taken away if we don't elect the right guy? Stephanie, keep your mic on, because I do want to hit you. This idea of what's happening on the ground in Israel and, and the different communities there, and what do they think about this Zionism and the American Christian Church's support of the Israel nation? Yeah, absolutely. So I went there in 2017. I was there to get to see all the billboards where you have Trump and Netanyahu shaking hands on all the billboards. And it's it, they actually co-opted Make America Great Again. It's at, there's Make, Make Israel Great Again billboards all around um, Israel. So I think that's really fascinating. It's so intertwined just visually if you're there. And the interesting, so you wonder what are these, what are the Christians there thinking? So you have expats which is one group. So a lot of Christians who probably know, mostly came there in like the 70s and 80s, because that was when Israel was like a really hot thing, I think, among evangelicals. So you have a lot of like Christian missionaries and missions organizations that were founded at that time. A lot of them either are conservative evangelicals or charismatic Pentecostals. And those two groups tend to really strongly align with Trump and buy into the whole Zionist narrative. So that's where they're at. But the thing is, they're English speaking. That was of an older, I grew up in a missionary family. It's an old gen missionary mindset of you don't really learn the language. You don't really assimilate to the culture assimilates to you, Western Christianity. So they never really got super integrated into the local bodies. So they're not growing. They're Most of them are dying um, churches. They're not really connected to the heartbeat of the local church communities. So it makes sense why they would still buy into the Zionist thing when they're not really having a heartbeat on what's actually happening. And you, of course, then have the Arab Palestinian believer communities, and then you have the Messianic Jewish communities. And what I found so interesting is that even though both of those groups, they wear everywhere they go, they have to wear a government identification card. Okay. So it's, and it says your nationality says whether you're Arab or Jewish, and it says your religion. And it is an insanely crazy process to try to change your religious identification. So it's very much, we, we think we're divided here. Like we think that we're very uh, identity politics. It is like straight up, you are what you are and you wear it around everywhere you go. That is, imagine that, right? Imagine two groups, two communities that have these strong, their livelihoods are affected by the politics and their national identities that they can't escape. And yet they're united under Christ. They're united under the religion. And how do they work together? What I found is that they truly set that aside. In fact, as we were interviewing them, because we we're there for a story, they didn't even want to talk about it. When we asked, even off, hey, this is off the record. What are your thoughts on just what's happening right now? And they're like, I don't really like to talk about it. I don't really like to make a big deal about it because we're trying our best to just come together and trying to set those things aside because ultimately those things don't matter. And the other thing, though, that makes it easier to do that is, I don't know if this has been brought up yet, but Israel definitely persecutes both groups. <laughs> we think that Jews have it easier because they're Jewish. Sometimes, no, they have it harder. Um, because they're Jewish, they're seen as traitors of the state. It's easier for an Arab to call themselves Christian because it's like, oh, you're an Arab, so it doesn't matter whether you're Muslim or Christian to us, ultimately, even though there is more of the antipathy towards Muslim externally 
To them, they see it the same. You're not Jewish. And because the state, this is a very unique situation, no other um, state in the world was founded based on religion and cultural identity, which is really fascinating because a lot of the Jews there are from not there. They're from like other parts of the world because when the nation was formed, it was bringing people from all around the world. So that you have that drives a deeper, um, harder, that complicates things because there's people who don't even belong to the land, technically, generationally, and then you have the Arab people that have been there for generations, and the church has been installed there for generations. Since the 12th century, they've had a, a really thriving Christian community. Of course, Islam has taken more and more of those numbers down, but it's just an interesting thing because Arabs feel like they have more of a of a right to be there as Christians. They feel like they have more of a claim for Christian Christianity. And so they see us in America supporting the Jews and they're like, but what? Like we're more traditionally Christian from generation to generations ago than these Jews from all around the world. So I don't know if that that's a try to, to get a lot of information in a short period of time, but yeah. that's a bit of a idea of what's going on there. <laughs> Stephanie, you're getting a lot of comments in the comment string and uh, including preach. So you're, <laughs> you're mind blown. So I, I, I you I know, I talk too fast. <laughs> no, you did. This is fascinating. I, I, I wish we had a whole lot more time to go here. But uh, Manuel, let me finish with you. So what I hear you saying is, uh, you know, tell me from your perspective through teaching through Jeremiah, what should our be desire? What should our desire be for Israel today and the Jewish people and their nation to see like God's plan go forward in the world? Is, 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 I know it's a big question, but what would your answer and thought be on that? Oh, man, yeah. What it all comes down to is really loving justice and doing mercy, right? Or Loving mercy and doing justice, as Habakkuk says, or Nahum, and what that looks like. And the things that we're witnessing today, even that Stephanie shared, don't quite look like that. And that's exactly what they got in trouble for before. And rather than pointing fingers and saying, see, this is all wrong. I think a prophetic voice identifies with that and identifies with the pain of those that are pained and can't defend themselves. Uh, Jeremiah wept for his people. Jesus wept for his people. If we don't have a heart that's broken over the things that are going on, I don't think we even have a right to speak mm -hmm. into those things. But what God is looking to see is a repentance to a nation that represents him and defends those that can't defend themselves. Wow. I got to tell you guys, this is really fascinating. I've learned so much tonight and I w wish we could go another hour, but we do want to let people get off and watch the the debate tonight. I want to remind people this that we're doing this every week. Maybe Lauren can tell me, I don't know if we have our subject for next week's set yet, but from the, the nonpartisan evangelical intersecting faith and politics and vote common good. And we do this every Tuesday and just heading up to the election to talk about issues that are impacting Christian voting and, and, and really looking at, is there another way to think than what we've been taught in the maybe white right-wing evangelical church and another thing to look at in all of this. I want to also, so every Tuesday night, we do this normally at six o'clock on a little bit early tonight. Next Tuesday, we'll be talking about the role of Christians in the political sphere. Some of our Christian brothers and sisters don't think we should even vote or be involved in politics at all. So we'll talk about uh, the role that politics should play. And also want to let you know, every Sunday night, we do what we call a spiritual gathering and we come together via Zoom 
take communion together, share life together, because we believe this disruption a little bit of the church and what's happening in COVID in 2020. We just need to share life together as we can. And so we'll have a link to that on the nonpartisan evangelical page every week. And we'd love for you to join us six o'clock Pacific time. I'm always giving Pacific times because I'm out here in the West, six o'clock Pacific on Sunday night for our spiritual gathering where we take communion. We would love for you to join us for that. And you can be from any faith and come join us and share life together with us on Sunday nights. So panel, great job. Thanks for joining us tonight. You guys were amazing. Where do we find all these smart people? All right, enjoy the wrestling match, otherwise known as the debate. Pray for our leaders, our elected officials, particularly the ones you don't agree with, because Jesus said, if you don't love your enemies, how can we know that you're any better than the worst tax collector out there? So let's pray for both sides tonight and that our country will do well together going forward and do well with the rest of the world as well. All right, good night, everybody. We'll see you next time here on this discussion brought to you by the nonpartisan evangelical intersecting faith and politics and vote common good. See you next Tuesday.